Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is kind of embarrassing, but there's no toilet paper over here. Are you talking to me? Yeah, I, I just forgot to check, so if you could spare some. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> what? No, I'm sorry, I can't spare it. You can't spare it? No, there's not enough to spare. Well, well, I don't need much. Just three squares will do it. I'm sorry. I don't have three squares. Now, if you don't mind. Three squares? You can't spare three squares? No, I don't have a square to spare. I can't spare a square. <laughs> well, is it two ply? Because if it's two ply, I'll take one ply. One ply. One puny little ply. I'll take one measly ply. Look, I don't have a square and I don't have a ply. No, 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 don't pull my back. All right. That, of course, is from Seinfeld. Uh, that is Elaine. Uh, and it turns out later that the woman who will not give her toilet paper is Jerry's date. And they're all together. Hilarious complications ensue. And actually, I would say mainly on television are conditions having to do with needing to pee, uh, needing toilet paper, uh, not having the right place to go. Only on television are those things hilarious. Mostly they're either really, really annoying, angering, frustrating or just really worrying. Uh, so we're going to talk about this today. Uh, we have uh, several guests for you. We will. I'm going to give out the phone number in, little, in a little while, and we'll, we'll try to take a few calls. Honestly, I can't take a lot of calls because we got pledge breaks in the middle of the show, and th- also there's parts of this conversation that could easily go for two hours if we, if we had those. So I can't take a lot of calls, but we'll put a few calls out there. But yes, I mean, the driving force behind this and kind of the main reason I started thinking about doing it is that Nicholas Kristof wrote a piece uh, in The New York Times about how America, uh, he seemed to think this was a problem specific to America, which is kind of odd because Nicholas Kristof goes a lot of places. But uh, America is not a good place to, you know, to need to go to the bathroom in in public environments. We just don't do that well. Uh, And then that occasioned, and this is really what sort of triggered me uh, into wanting to do this, you know, one of those days when the New York Times like o- only has letters about this one topic, but it's usually like impeachment or something. But on, on, on the following Sunday, all of the letters in the New York Times were about public toilets. And I thought, ah, this is big. We have to do this. So uh, here we go. Uh, and uh, joining us now is uh, the perfect person to talk to, Leslie Lowe, uh, teaches journalism at the University of King's College uh, and is the author of No Place to Go. How Public Toilets Fail Our Private Needs. I would like to say, before I bring her on board, that this book should be accompanied by a warning sticker that says, warning, while reading this book, you will constantly think that you need to go pee, even if you just did like three minutes ago. At least that was my overall experience (laughs) of reading it. Leslie Lowe, uh, welcome to our show. Happy to oblige. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I guess maybe the place to begin here is 
This is a situation that you might think would be getting better, you know, as we sort of rethink our obligations to different groups in society, as we uh, try to understand very specific issues that uh, women have, that maybe men don't have, as we begin to incorporate uh, trans and other gender nonconforming people into our society, you would think that overall public toilets would be something that were thought about, thought about in a new way, and kind of amplified in terms of access. And from what I can tell, exactly the opposite is happening. Yeah, I think the opposite is happening. I think in part, we have to sort of contextualize this with COVID. Mm -hmm. um, Because I do think there are more people than ever talking about the need for public bathrooms and and really understanding that public bathrooms contribute to everybody's ability to use public space. So I do see lots of signs that the ideas are changing. Um, But I think, you know, what's kind of hampered that particularly acutely is COVID, which has shifted everything in the world. Um, and, And also, you know, public bathrooms can be, and I don't mean public bathrooms as the bathrooms in McDonald's or Starbucks or your local independent cafe, but on street government funded bathrooms are, are expensive, you know, and, and so I think jurisdictions need to think through really clearly where they want to put their money and, and frequently for a whole bunch of reasons we can probably talk about bathrooms just get pushed down the list. Right. Um, Well, there are a whole bunch of reasons, and some of them are issues of negligence. uh, And some of them, I think, are because it's sort of a subject that we we, we don't like keeping top of mind, or at least a lot of people don't. But it's also money, right? It's money. They're, they are expensive to maintain, and people make sexy time in them, and people vandalize them, and somebody's got to maintain them, and uh, everybody's municipal budget is strapped for cash. So, I mean, is, is that sort of issue number one? You should pardon the expression. Um, you mean the cost? Yeah. I don't, I don't think that is the number one issue that people should be thinking about because I think that's a, that is a view that neglects to consider all of the myriad benefits of having public bathrooms in specifically, let's say, downtown course. Um, and so we can talk about, you know, all the, the good things like, you know, equity for people who need this this amenity, which is everybody, everybody needs this. Some people are more cut off than others. So if you're experiencing homelessness, you're probably more likely to need a public bathroom than somebody who's not experiencing homelessness. And cities ought to be working to to level the playing field in that way. Um, And so there's that. But the other thing I, I frequently point people to is I ask the question, why do you think malls have great public bathrooms? And the answer is, well, you know, there's a number, sometimes people say, oh, well, because they want it to be a nice experience and they want it to, you know, people to feel good when they're there. Yes, that is true. But the reason is because they want people to stay there and spend money. You know, the malls are not operating because, oh, out of the kindness of their hearts, they think it would be nice for everybody to have public bathrooms. They're doing that because we know that when there are, you know, appropriate amenities in place, people stay longer in spaces. And so for downtown cores, particularly that are trying to revitalize, to me, yes, it is a big cost. And maybe that is the primary cost people think about in terms of that economic argument, but there are payoffs 
economic and social that we seem to kind of discount when we talk about public bathrooms. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I, I think also negatives weigh on people's minds more than positives. So that I don't think anybody comes back from vacation and says, yeah, we were just in Santa Fe and it was terrific. The public bathrooms are great. You know, you really never had to worry about where you were going to go to the bathroom. I don't even know if that's true about Santa Fe. This is just an example. But it's, people aren't going to say that. But they are going to say, I just got back from San Francisco and there's like dookie on the sidewalk. I couldn't, that was really disgusting. And it happened more than once. So, I mean, it, it's sort of when, when it's not done right, that really does become kind of a deal breaker. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting just getting back to that idea of are things changing or things should be changing? Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen a shift in the last, let's say, 15, 20 years with more and more people talking about, um, you know, pedestrian friendly cities, age friendly cities. This is a huge thing. You know, the baby boomers have made it so that aging in place is really important. We need people to be able to navigate their cities at any age. Um, and walkability, and part of this is because of climate change and the effects of that, but public bathrooms are are baked in, baked into all of those concepts. When we talk about a city that is friendly for cyclists, you have to have a city where people can stop to use the bathroom. And I, I see politicians talk about that, and that's fantastic, but what needs to follow is kind of the next step, which is the planning and the money. By the way, if anybody does want to call in, we can try to squeeze a few calls in here. The number is 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. So, yeah, you know, heading into this show, I was sort of thinking, well, the women versus men issue, that's sort of a separate issue. We could do a whole show on that. Let's just talk about it just in terms of just whether there are enough bathrooms or not. And then I read your book and I thought, well, no, that's wrong. I mean, this really does way more heavily on women for like eight different reasons, starting with the fact, and I did not know this, that it takes longer for women just to empty their bladder. Forget about finding a stall and making the misaligned lock work and, you know, all the other stuff. Just emptying it out takes longer. Yep, it absolutely does. Um, Women take about twice as long as men to use the bathroom um, for all of those reasons. And that that explains, I, I often do this when I will do a public talk, explain the, the kind of calculus behind that, very, very broad strokes. Um, many, many bathrooms that were designed in the 20th century. Um, if you think about, you know, I can think in Halifax where I live, a, a, a prominent concert hall. So on every floor, there's a set of binary bathrooms, male, male female, same floor space in each side. Mm. Male floor space is equal to female floor space. In the female side, you fit three stalls. In the male side, you fit two stalls and four urinals. And so right there, you can see men have twice the provision of, uh, of women, um, but women take about twice as long. So right there in that sort of calculus, you can immediately see why there are lineups for the bathroom and why women struggle so much to get access. Right. I mean, I think occasionally we, in recently, you know, heavily remodeled places, we sometimes see something a little bit better than that. I could be wrong about this, in which case I will be shouted at, I'm sure. But I think... Right, you're right. Yeah. I mean, I think, for example, the Harper Harper Stage Company, I think uh, now... uh, I see. So, um, in the U.S. Yeah, so there's potty parity laws, which dictate that women need 
get two to three times the provision of men in new or extensively renovated buildings. Yeah. So, um, well, before we go any further, you know, you might think, well, who, what kind of person would have the kind of right kind of sensitivity to think this thing through in a way that would, uh, you know, properly kind of align the advantages of each uh, of each group? And of course, everybody thinks of Larry David. So, Kat, let's hear that. Look at this. See, this is smart. The ladies get to sit down. This makes sense. No, no, no. They don't sit. They squat. I don't get it. Women don't want to sit. They're very envious that we can. They have they have pee envy, actually. Look what I've done for them. Okay. See? You grab onto these bars. The knees go in here. They don't touch anything. They're not touching. That's what they don't like. They don't like touching the toilet. It's like a Pilates class, though. Is it hard? You don't want to go too much longer than a pee time. I wouldn't stay here all day. And the pants go where? Yeah, I don't know. Whatever they do with them. Come and join me. Settle up. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Just grab on here? Yeah, grab on here. Let's see how we do it. Yeah. Oh, this one feels good. Yeah. This is empowering. Yeah. Just this body position makes me feel strong. I'm really tired. Did you consult women on this? No. They'll love this, though. Oh, yeah. I like the feeling here. Yeah, okay. The girl's going to love it. My legs are killing me. So uh, beneath that comedy is a, a deeper truth, Leslie Lowe, that you point out in the book, which is, you know, most spaces that, you know, uh, particularly spaces that have existed more than, say, 10, 15, 20 years, most of them have been designed by men, correct? Yes, that's correct. And built by men and oh. ma- maintained by men. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they're just not going to be as good as thinking this through. And, you know, we, we talked just about, you know, how long it takes to empty the bladder, but it's more complicated than that, right? Women are more likely to have kids with them. Women menstruate. There's like a lot of reasons why, in fact, women are going to need probably an even greater accommodation than just, you know, the time it takes to empty their bladder. Yeah, that's right. Women are um, visiting the bathroom for more reasons. They are visiting the bathroom more frequently than men, um, and they're more frequently in charge of people they are caring for. So that ends up being, you know, kind of doubling or tripling or however many people you have with you, the times you're going in, and it takes longer when you do so. So um, we should maybe just talk about who, who does do this well. Is, is anybody doing this well? And I guess when I, when I say this, I mean that idea of, uh, of toilets, specifically public toilets. We can talk about McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts and all that kind of stuff a little bit later. But just toilets that anybody can use. Is there, are there are sign? We're going to talk about the Portland Loo in a separate segment in the final uh, part, part of the show. But is anybody else doing it well? Um, So I write in my book a lot about San Francisco, which has had some pretty epic difficulties with with open defecation and many, many, many other cities deal with this, but but San Francisco is kind of... um, the the big example everybody gives and they've had significant issues and they've they've really risen to the challenge of dealing with that and they've created something called the the pit stop model of toilet provision which is in some cases um, toilets that are taken to high needs areas so they're trailer toilets um, so they're available for people when they need them and they've also you know they installed quite quite a few decades ago, um, some automated public toilets, which many listeners may be familiar with. They're on street, they're, you know, kind of robot toilets, the door slides open, you go in, you can use the toilet and it kind of washes down when you're finished. Um, But what they did is they found that they had installed those. This is a 
a mistake lots of places make is they think, oh, great, we'll just plunk this thing here and we'll walk away. You know, and we'll just top up the toilet paper every once in a while. But the problem, there are a number of problems with that. And in part, it's, you know, we, there, we see sex work, we see drug use, we see people not wanting to use those toilets because they've functionally not, not, they're no longer toilets, right? There's, they're public spaces that are used for other things. So what San Francisco has done is created the pit stop model. And in part, on a number of those automated toilets, they have attendants, you know, and that's kind of a mid 20th century idea or and earlier that we think about where, you know, you don't have toilet attendants anymore, but this is a fantastic model. And it basically means somebody stands on the outside of the toilet, maintains the queue, um, you know, I've I've been to a few of these in San Francisco and it's, you know, not identifying myself as a reporter or a researcher, but just chatting with the person. Um, and then you can use the toilet. And when you come out, it gets just a brief check to make sure it's okay and good to go for the next person. And, and that's it. And that's been pretty successful in San Francisco. And it's really shifted those toilets that were not being used as toilets back to amenities that everybody can use. Right. I, I spent a lot of time on their site today, and it's very interesting. And a lot of the employees are former prisoners, uh, yes. so that's a yep. way of uh, generating employment. Although, it being San Francisco, I think the Public Works Department says at one point, and so like you know, putting these things into certain areas uh, frees up the Public Works staff to go deal with <laughs> with public being and defecation in other areas. Uh, so they haven't completely got enough of these to, to completely knock the problem down. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of Leslie Lowe after this. I was born in Arkansas Me mammy was a squaw Papi hailed from Timbuktu There's one thing I recall That I hated most of all Was that little green shed We're talking about public toilets and where do you go when you got to go. Uh, we're talking about it with Leslie Lowe, whose book is No Place to Go, How Public Toilets Fail Our Private Needs. I said we take a call or two. Uh, let's take a call from uh, Eliad in New Haven. Hi, you're on the air. Hi there, Colin. Uh, thanks for having me on. Big fan of the show. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, so I feel pretty strongly about this. Uh, I definitely think there should be more public toilets more public restrooms, and uh, it was interesting hearing, um, was it Leslie who was talking? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, she's still here, too. All right. Well, yeah. Hi, Leslie. Um, hey. When you were talking about costs, and I just think it's more interesting, I feel like we should be discussing even more the cost of not having public restrooms. And to me, it just seems like we're missing out on so much, um, and that it's adjacent to another issue that I care a lot about, and that's that there's not enough public water fountains. So I guess I'd like to hear your take on that, Leslie, and how public water fountains fit in this whole dynamic of needing more, you know, basic amenities in our downtown areas. You know, he, uh, I don't know if we have time to really have a big conversation about public water fountains. And I also sort of wonder how COVID ex- affects all that. But um 
But I think, what, you know, like we're having a big conversation, Leslie, here in the USA about infrastructure and, you know, a massive infrastructure bill. But, you know, and you'd think that maybe something as basic as going to the bathroom would be considered infrastructure. Somehow it isn't. Yeah. I mean, I think the I think it's all part and parcel of the same kind of issues when we, you talk about, you know, uh, the big infrastructure bill that Biden is proposing, but also you know, bathrooms are places where we practice hand hygiene, which mm-hmm. is essential during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are also places where we fill water bottles. I know you're going to talk to um, Evan from the Portland Loo, um, but the Portland Loo has, um, he can speak to this, but potable water that's available on the outside of the Portland Loo. Mm-hmm. So that acts kind of as a, a public fountain. Um, and again, that may be affected by COVID, but I think it speaks to this this big idea that, um, in cities, we we have a certain expectation, and this is, you know, pan-national, about the kinds of things that we expect our cities to have, the kind of basket of goods that are part of the common. And, you know, I would say there's kind of universal ones like sidewalks and streetlights and stop signs and benches and trash cans. Um, but somehow, public bathrooms quite acutely have been locked off that list. Uh, and I think that's really come about because we've seen the rise of, of publicly accessible bathrooms that would be the ones in inside fast food restaurants or other, other stores. Um, and so municipalities have kind of gladly let go of public bathrooms because they can offload it onto businesses, which I don't think is the way to go. As far as drinking fountains go, I think, you know, I suspect it's along the same lines. It's this idea of what do we expect our tax dollars to provide for us in order for us to use our cities? One of my favorite uh, things in your book I, was a failed experiment. It probably deserved to fail, uh, but was a, a kind of a, an app type of thing called AirPNP. Just quickly oh, yeah. explain what AirPNP was. Airbnb was, as you may imagine, um, you could list your bathroom, your urban bathroom, um, and the cost for its use on this app. And then people could could just book it and use it like quite last minute. Um, yeah, it failed though. Yeah. I wonder if it was like Uber, whether there was sort of, you know, high traffic congestion pricing and stuff like that. But uh, <laughs> yeah. you'd want to make it fairly elastic that way. You know, um, so uh, maybe just spend a second or two talking about what you just said, that kind of third space, public-private bathroom. Uh, you know, I grew up in the era of Howard Johnson's, and that was like a big selling point, as I remember. We had clean, well-lighted restrooms, so stop yeah. there with your family. And, and I think that's still, to a certain degree, whether it's Starbucks, Starbucks or McDonald's, one theory is you increase traffic if you do this fairly well. Come use the bathroom, stay for the Big Mac. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely still happening. I think the problem with that, though, is that we see that access when it's a private place like that, um, access can be curtailed and it can be curtailed in a number of different ways. And it's not fair on either side. You know, so you have somebody who is perhaps profoundly experiencing profound homelessness, somebody who has not showered in a very long time, somebody who frankly may have soiled themselves and they need a bathroom and they are barred from coming into a restaurant. Um, That's not a good position for that person to be in. It's not a good position for the people working there to be in, to have to enforce that kind of rule. If you have a public space, this, you know, the quote unquote third space, that's a, 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 
you know, it is part of the third space, like a library. That's a, something where it's the deal is everybody gets to use this, no questions asked. And, you know, we meet people where they are and we deal with it. And that's the job of that place. And I think that, you know, that's that's missing quite a bit. So uh, this is a huge topic here, um, but and we should say in your book, there's a really long stretch of your book, which takes place at Wesleyan University, which is, I don't know, 20, 20, 20 25 minutes maybe from where I'm sitting. So um, and that's where, unsurprisingly, if you know Wesleyan, uh, the whole issue of uh, bathrooms for trans people, gender nonconforming people uh, very, very quickly came to uh, a head. You once again should pardon the expression. So um uh, explain about that. Uh, well, I think what's really interesting is kind of where this winds up, which is you can't just take the conventional bathroom allocation and fix it so that it addresses this issue. You almost have to rethink the space and, and the function entirely. Yeah. Um, I mean, this this was a situation, this is going back a few years, but it was a situation in broad strokes where um, students had been year over year asking for more non-binary um, options or more all gender options in terms of bathrooms. And, and students felt that um, one student who I spoke to said, you, you know, there was this sense that because there's student turnover every two years or four years or whatever, that, you know, there is a lack of impetus on behalf of the university to really make change quickly because the institutional memory just gets wiped in terms of students. And so a group of students kind of had enough and they decided they were going to tear the, all of the gender signs off of the bathrooms. Um, and so they, they did that. They just destroyed the signs and they did it over a I think it was a few days, um, and it was it was a big problem. Um, on the obviously for the administration, it was a big problem because they were um, they wanted to keep the gendered bathrooms gendered because that's how they had been designed. Um, but it also became a real flashpoint for some women on campus who felt that they were not safe sharing bathrooms with men. Um, and this is, you know, I say in the book, this is one of my sources says, you know, you're way more likely if you're concerned about sexual assault, you're far more likely to be sexually assaulted at the party you go to later than you are using the, you know, the shared gender bathroom at the, at the college library. Mm. But, um, you know, there's a, it's a real, that's a story that really highlights how sometimes when we're seeking equity and I think, I think it would be, it's very hard to find people who would not argue that we, sh, you know, we should be seeking equity in this front. People who are trans or non-binary deal with harassment, both physical, you know, physical violence, uh, verbal harassment when they use bathrooms that match their gender expression. And that is a, a problem that needs to be fixed. But at the same time, I don't think it's okay to just completely discount the experiences and the feelings of women who are scared. So that was a an anecdote that really, really showed that competing bathroom issues are are not simple to fix. They're really, really sometimes can be at odds. And it does require, as you say, this kind of wholesale reimagining of the bathrooms. Um, and that itself is it's far more costly than just ripping the signs off. 
Right. I mean, and and I mean, it, you throwing the doors open doesn't really solve the problems of a lot of trans people, too. There are going to be trans people who don't feel safe in the men's room and aren't welcome in the women's room. Uh, so so their problems uh, are not solved either. You really are probably looking at a situation where you either need the kind of single use you know, individual bathroom uh, one at a time or a third sign for a third kind of bathroom. But anyway, we have to stop there. Leslie Lowe teaches journalism at the University of King's College and is the author of, and believe me, there's plenty more to read. We have barely scratched the surface. Uh, So she's the author of No Place to Go, How Public Toilets Fail Our Private Needs. Here come some very nice people who've been allowed to go to the bathroom before they did this, and they are going to ask you to support public broadcasting. This show in particular, it's always great if you give during our time period because... And people think, oh, this is this is the thing they like, you know. You see what I'm saying here? Are you making this connection? My bathroom. My bathroom. 1-800-584-2788. That is the number that you can call to uh, give your pledge of support to Connecticut Public Radio. But if you don't want to talk on the phone, you can also go to WMPR.org slash donate. Uh, there's a clean layout there for you to uh, to uh, figure that out. Uh, I'm Kat Pastor. I'm here with Jeff Cohen. He's the news director here at Connecticut Public. And we are here today to ask for your pledge of support. You're listening to The Colin McEnroe Show. You love The Colin McEnroe Show. The Colin McEnroe Show has big plans, but we need support in order to put those plans into action. And the only way we can do that is uh, by asking for money from our listeners because <laughs> uh, we are That's a right. listener-funded station. Uh, we are not beholden to advertisers. So, uh, you know, everything we do is in service to our listeners. Um, and uh, we take that very seriously, especially Colin. I know he always says that if uh, if he's not feeling a show, he's not putting it on the air. He will only put on just the highest quality of show. I think he does, like, uh, of every 10 shows, two make it to air. I think so, I think too. That, <clears throat> yeah. Something like that. Two yeah, ideas, he just at kills, least. He just kills. He just... For sure. And I think oh, yeah. that that's a good thing. That's not you true, but it... No, no, he, I mean, he has really high standards. You're right. He has very high mm-hmm. standards, and, and so do the producers of that show. That is very true. Betsy, Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McNichol. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you should see uh, the document, the, the Google Docs uh, that we go through, um, that they're all writing it, like working ideas out, reworking them, and then, you know, either that one that one's a go or that one we're just never going to talk about again. And we're putting that idea to rest right now. Um, so uh, that's, that speaks to the quality of the programming that you get, not only on the Colin McEnroe Show, but across the Connecticut public platform. Um, over the past year that I've been here, the station has expanded so much. There's three new shows, Audacious, Seasoned, and Disrupted. Um, there's Where We Live had a relaunch. Uh, the news just keeps coming. I'm sure you're feeling that, Jeff. We're tired. But yeah. we're, we're hanging in. We're <laughs> hanging in. But it, I think you're right, Kat, is, is, is that over the past year in the pandemic, we haven't slowed. We've grown. We're growing our investigative unit and we're hiring people as we speak. We're growing um, our reporting staff as we speak. And we're bringing out, like just like you said, new shows, new things for you to listen to and enjoy and things that will make you think. Uh, and just learn more about where you live. And we need you to support that. We need you to support all of that. So call 1-800-584-2788. That is the number. Uh, and there'll be nice folks on the other end willing to take uh, your money for <laughs> uh, your, you know, your, it's like, it's you signing up. You know, I actually had a, an opportunity, Kat, uh, earlier uh, today to meet with some people who are funding some of our internship programs. And the pride 
that donors feel, uh, donors big and small, donors who give what they can uh, as, as, a, as a sign of commitment to this station and to this news operation and to this storytelling operation and this journalism operation, is um, just makes me smile. People really feel a connection as they should. This is your public radio station, your Connecticut public. Please do support it. 1-800-584-2788. That's right, or at WMPR.org slash donate, um, which uh, if you if you go to that page, you'll see it's a pretty clean layout. You could either become a one-time donor, which means that you just give your amount at one time uh, and, and uh, call it a day, or you can become a monthly sustaining member, which is kind of like a set it and forget it thing. You select an amount to be taken out of your checking account um, every month, and that amount can change because we know that people's situations change. So, uh, you know, don't feel locked into that. Uh, and on that page, too, you can see all of the great thank you gifts that we have for our listeners, for their support. Um, and, yeah, as we were talking about, like, uh, you know, we, we need your support to keep going. Think of it as kind of like a, like a streaming service. Think of it as like a Netflix or a Hulu. I don't mm -hmm. know if I'm legally allowed to say that, say their names. Let's go uh, with on it. On the air, but let's go with it. Sure. Um, uh, when you contribute to us, you're getting content back. And the more the more uh, money we raise, the more that we can expand, uh, the more we can uh, switch things up, add more content, and uh, bring you content in new ways. And that's uh, really important mm. for us. Right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you're asking, you're telling. No, you're telling. You're telling. Mm. Uh, you're, you don't have to ask it. That is true. And look, the Colin McEnroe Show, uh, over 10 years, 11 years now, uh, here on Connecticut Public, Colin and I started. I started just after he did. Uh, both of us, uh, at some point or another, refugees from the newspaper world, uh, and and he brings his brain. He brings his whole passion. He brings all that he is to this station. It's a wonderful thing. Please do support it. One eight hundred five eight four two seven eight eight is the number to call. Thank you so much in advance. All right, we are back. Time for me to say some thank yous. Cat Pastor is the technical producer of this show. She is there behind the glass. Or maybe I'm behind the glass. See, it depends on your perspective. There's glass separating us. That's the key part. Uh, and uh, Betsy Kaplan is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. This uh, is her uh, brainchild of this particular show. Uh, and she's the one who has produced it. So there you go. Those, those are the thank yous. And the thank yous also go if you have taken this time to call 1-800-584-2788 or go online to WNPR.org and support this radio station, support this show. That's a whole other set of thanks. All right. Because you'd want to support a show that did a thing about public toilets. Joining us now is uh, Evan Madden, the sales manager for the Portland Loo. It's spelled exactly like the Portman Zoo, uh, Portland Zoo, except for uh, an L instead of the Z. Uh, but you would have very different experiences depending on which one you went to. Uh, uh, Evan Madden, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, yeah. Thank you for the introduction. And yes, uh, the Portland Loo is certainly much different than the Portland Zoo. <laughs> Don't get those confused. Although <laughs> uh, there's defecation taking place in both uh, both locales. So um, maybe be to just begin, when we, when we think about this kind of thing, and we're not thinking about a porta potty, we're th talking about a really a kind of a highly designed public facility. And, you know, after Nicholas Kristof wrote his column in the New York Times, there were a whole bunch of letters. And I read one from a person from nearby Seattle who seemed to be saying, Oh, we did something. We did a thing that was like this, and it didn't work. And there was vandalism. And um, so maybe we can begin by saying you probably were looking down the road at Seattle and trying to figure out what went wrong and how you could avoid having that go wrong. Can you sort of fill in the the spaces of that a little bit first? Oh yeah, exactly. Really, the Portland Loo restroom that um, I manufacture and sell 
really has a lot of roots um, from Seattle. And being that Seattle was using uh, a really popular restroom called the Automatic Public Toilet. Um, it was made overseas in Germany, I believe. And um, it was a high-tech fancy toilet for a pretty high-tech city like Seattle. And uh, this restroom was meant to solve a lot of problems, but ultimately kind of created more problems than it than it was trying to solve. And what I mean is it had too much um, enclosed privacy that allowed for drug use and prostitution to kind of flourish. And then it had pay-to-use options, so you couldn't use the restroom without paying a small fee for it, which eliminated um, you know, a crowd or a population of people that you know relies on these public restrooms. And then it had um, moving parts and features that were easily vandalized and could be broken and then were costly to repair. So this restroom was just, um, you know, overcomplicated and making user features that kind of created more problems for the people that had to maintain and supervise this restroom that was installed. Um, alone, the restroom was about a million dollars to purchase and install too. So the, the cost was very high for these restrooms as well. Right. So and what you yeah, what you want is a vandalism-proof uh, enclosure that's comfortable, but not so comfortable that people want to stay there longer than it takes for them to do their business, and also not so private that people can do other kinds of business. So how yeah. did you, how did you arrive at that? How did you? I, I don't know. Was it, was it? Can you describe where that sweet spot is? Oh, certainly. Well, I wasn't involved in this process, and um, thankfully I wasn't because I'm sure it was um, a hard time to do. But really, it involved the the police and fire departments and then the parks maintenance staff and then uh, getting everyone that would have to engage in the restroom after it was installed, making sure they got the the durability they wanted out of it. And really what we we push for is almost like a almost a prison grade uh, structure. So imagine anyone 24 seven, 365 should be able to like pick up this restroom and, and walk away undefeated for how how strong and durable this is. And, and nothing can be ripped off. Nothing. Um, gets uh, destroyed other than like scratching of the restroom that I really can't um, defend too much. And then also like smashing of like the flush handle and, and door handles of the restroom. But really the restroom is, is nearly bullet or bat proof that it is um, very strong and durable. And then just kind of eliminating, you know, complete privacy is how you're able to allow this to be unmonitored in the public. And it's creating a place that you don't feel safe that you can either live in or, or, do unwanted behaviors in that this kind of semi-private space doesn't doesn't allow that kind of behavior to happen. I'm sure it does, but not in the same way that other restrooms would. Now, do I have it right that one thing that happens here is you wash your hands on the outside of the uh, enclosure? Yeah, correct. And that's um, a way to generate higher usage rates, and it eliminates something called the hotel effect. It's trying to eliminate all the comforts of a, a home or a dwelling inside this unit and, and kind of separate them apart. So while they're all still to the, there together, um, the behavior of how you use them is different and, and benefits more of the, the people that have to want to have higher usage rates for this restroom too, making sure it's always available. So so the way this works and the way that it's going to work, and this is really where you do come in in a significant way, is that not just Portland, but other municipalities are going to to buy these things or, or contract, I guess, for these things. So, so how's that going? It's going well. And um, to speak on the design and how good it is, I'm always looking to improve things and make it better. And, you know, one of the things is just being the door lock. That's what I want to improve. So when this restroom does get to new cities, um, you know, I'm on my close to my 100th 
plus installation elsewhere. It's fun to see the first one that's just down the street from where we manufacture them to, you know, where they'll go across the country and know that we're building these so much better all the time and that each city gets to benefit from Portland's design. So I have them from all across the country uh, in the U.S. to in Canada as well, quite a few, um, probably close to 15 in Canada and one as far as away as Dunedin, New Zealand, where they have the world's steepest street in Baldwin Street and having a tourist attraction or destination without having a building or facility for this, uh, they kind of needed a restroom to have something there, this destination. So when uh, when municipalities are trying to make a decision about whether to do this, what are the tipping points? I mean, obviously, this is going to cost some money, and municipalities always feel like they don't have any money for anything. Um, so so you know, how does the persuasion work? It's um, typically it's either replacing an existing facility that's just you know too costly to maintain, and and that's a pretty easy decision to to replace it with a Portland Loo. But I think what you're referring to is like when people have no restrooms available in downtowns, and and that's where the Loo really kind of exists in a market that doesn't have any competition because a restroom that's designed really not for the user but for the people that have to you know maintain it, supervise it. That's what makes this restroom so an easier decision to add to a city where you know it's going to be unsupervised a lot of the time. It's going to be messy, but making sure it's easy to clean is going to be to your benefit. So when the restroom is is so durable and unlike any traditional restrooms, I think that really helps sell the idea of, you know, if we're going to have a restroom in downtown, this is what we want. And, um, and having a city of like Portland implementing eight in our downtown area and continuing to add more, and so it was a great kind of proof of concept. Cities are talking to each other and looking to learn from how to do, how to solve the same problems that other cities are. So to have, you know, Portland work with us, the manufacturer and their design to improve it and make it better, we both benefit in, in all that. So it's, uh, it's really fun to kind of have a product that is it's never the same. It's always evolving to be better. And I get to work with cities to make a restroom that's specific for them. And it's not always just the Portland Lou when it arrives somewhere um, it becomes that city or that street's loo and kind of has features that really make it benefit where they go. I'm going to ask you a question about that in just a second, but I, I think it's worth kind of doubling down on what you're saying. I mean, there's a term that comes up a lot in urban planning and lots of other places, quality of life. And, you know, it, when you say quality of life, where you poop and pee isn't necessarily the first thing you think of. But if you if you don't have a place to poop and pee, or if you got Amazon drivers, you know, peeing in water bottles and throwing them out the window, or, you know, I mean, it, it, it's not hard for quality of life to deteriorate if you don't do something like this well. So I would imagine that, you know, those people who are urban planners, those people who are decision makers and thought leaders in any community can be, can come around to this pretty quickly. Exactly. And then that's, um, you, I feel the exact same way. And, and kind of, when I talk to people about what I do for a living, the criticism is often it's um, unnecessary. Um, you know, we shouldn't be providing these to homeless to make their lives easier. And my thought is, you're not going to make their lives really easier or better. You're really going to make everyone live better together. The less we encounter human waste and feces on streets, we're all going to improve our quality of life. You know, costs of, uh, you know, healthcare costs will be down if we can all live at a, a better quality of life that we're not sharing diseases and encountering these kind of wastes. It's the best way to go. And um, being that it's not just for the homeless is, is absolutely important too. These restrooms 
are best cited in a way that are inviting and used by everyone. And that also helps citing this restroom and having a successful installation is how you look uh, to cite this restroom with SEPTED principles is what I talk about. It's crime prevention through environmental design. And it really creates an area that has open sight lines and visibility and kind of create behaviors in a way that you engineer the problems out of the space. And it's always like continuously improving it, but there's never a set guideline for it, but there's certain ideas to adhere to to help installations go quicker or better. Right. So, I mean, obviously your thing always has to be ADA compliant, uh, but what you're saying in terms of like the different municipalities, I assume like how hard the toilet paper dispenser has to be or something like that, it's going to vary from place to place? Sometimes it does. Uh, it's always a shock to learn that it varies uh, slightly um, in each city and state thinking it should be the same. Um, but again, I don't, I don't want to have to decide. I just want to build the best restroom. That's going to be, you know, to manufacture things. Well, you want everything to be the same and, and certainly most of it is, but there's certain variances where um, it does come across where it's different in some cities, but we are able to kind of create restrooms that are um, not just for the downtown areas that are really focused on kind of, you know, tough neighborhoods or, or you know, ugly locations, you know, that have drug use kind of problems is what I'm referring to. We also have them in nice parks in, in uh, places where kids and families go near water fountains. And, and that's where we have features like a sharps container versus a baby changing table. And I often refer that if you're getting a sharps container, you probably don't want a baby changing station because the area is just going to be different. But it's kind of important to consider what kind of types of people will be using this as, as much as possible and, and doing that sort of thing. So we are able to put the restroom in very cold and snowy conditions, being that uh, my coldest is probably in Smithers, Canada, in northern BC, Canada. And then also I have my southern California to Miami installations that are able to be in warm weather and high storms. Um, I have a hurricane-rated restroom in Miami <laughs> and a negative 24-rated restroom up in northern Canada. So um these restrooms are needed in all everywhere at all times. So in the dead of winter, I have close to four feet of snow around my Smithers location and probably, um, you know, people in bikinis and flip flops using my restroom in Miami. So it's, uh, you know, everyone will need to use this restroom and kind of having them at beaches and, and other places is a great idea as well. All right. Evan Madden, we're going to have to stop there, but Evan Madden is the sales manager for the Portland Lou. Get one for Hartford, get one for New Haven. Oh, maybe they have. I don't think they do, though. All right. So uh, once again, I'm going to say some people are going to come on, I think, for like three minutes and ask if you would be willing to support public radio. If you say yes during our little time slot here, it's a good thing for us. It doesn't hurt anyway, right? It's better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick, as my father used to say. So, uh, so please do it. Please do support us. Uh, support the station, but very specifically support our show by pledging during our show. Don't make me beg. Hi, I'm Jeff Cohen here with Cat Pastor. This has been the Colin McEnroe Show. You made it all the way to the end because uh, you've enjoyed listening to the show. You've listened to it most likely for years. Uh, Colin has over a decade at the station of really uh, the kind of conversations and explorations that I, I I dare you to find something else that's remotely close to it. The kinds of conversations that he brings and the the depth on. Every, I mean, I remember a few years ago the list I had was 
there were goats in studio. There was beer in studio. It was a whole thing on nuns. I mean, Colin uh, will take things that seem niche uh, and really make you want to keep listening and learning more because he is that curious. You're that curious, and that's why you're listening now. What we need you to do is to say, you know what? I value the show. I value Colin. I value its producers, and I value this content. I need to support the organization. And call one 800 584 2788 and make a pledge of support. Right, Kat? That's right. Or you could go to WMPR.org slash donate if you don't want to talk on the phone. And I know that there's a lot of you out there. I know a lot of people listen to this show because when I started working here, the amount of people who, like I hadn't even heard from, who would who would contact me and be like, oh, you're working on Colin's show now. I was like, how right. do you even know that stalker? But turns out they all just listen to Colin and they love it. <laughs> Stalker. <laughs> yeah, how do you even right. know that? I don't put yeah, anything creepy. about it. <laughs> it's just because he says your name every day. Exactly. That's how it's they fantastic. know. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I know that you're all out there. I know that you love the show. Uh, as I was saying earlier, Colin doesn't put anything on the air that he does not think is worthy of you listening to, and he uh, really sticks to that. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, yeah, just in general, Connecticut Public needs your support to uh, keep expanding, keep growing, and uh, keep going in general. And, um, you know, we're a listener-funded station. So, uh, you know, um, as much as we hate uh, interrupting your programming, we just have to do it every once in a while to ask for said support. So, again, 1-800-584-2788 or wmpr.org slash donate. Yeah, and, you know, look at, look around. Look around at the programming that you rely on that's local. Look around at your local newspapers. Look around uh, at your local television stations and radio stations. This is unique. Connecticut Public is unique. Our, our content is unique. Uh, and like I said before, in this pandemic, we could have slowed down. We could have um, rested and just done enough to get by and survive. And we just didn't do that. We grew uh, we expanded, and we kept bringing you live, thoughtful talk pro- talk radio programming like the Colin McEnroe Show each and every day. Uh, it hadn't been easy. It hasn't been easy at all, uh, but it's, it is neither has this for anyone. <laughs> so uh, we're all in it together. We need you to be in it with us. Please do give us a call, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate, and thanks. Thanks.